The Right Hook Podcast. With the Mitsubishi Outlander Business, the two-seater commercial SUV with over 2,000 litres of cargo space, two-ton towing capacity and legendary four-wheel drive technology. MitsubishiMotors.ie The show is The Right Hook. The station is News Talk. I'm Bobby Kerr filling in for George today. I'll be bringing the usual mix of news, comment and opinion. Now, recently, there have been many claims that suggest Ireland is experiencing a two-tier recovery and that rural areas aren't feeling any growth. But one economist thinks that's all a myth and that rural Ireland is prospering despite claims to the contrary. Joining me to debate this is Dan O'Brien. He's a chief economist at the Institute of International and European Affairs. And Michael Fitzmaurice, independent TD for Roscommon Galway, he joins us on the line. Dan, I'm going to start with you. Um, An article in the Sunday Independent yesterday, um, really, really challenging um, the position of rural Ireland. You're saying that really that there there isn't a two-tier Ireland. You're saying that, uh, you know, I, I, I'd preface it by saying that you're not anti-rural Ireland, but you're saying that the case that's been made here by independent politicians and others are overstating the severity of the crisis in rural Ireland. Well, let me say I'm not challenging rural Ireland. I'm challenging the notion that rural Ireland is dying, one of the emotive expressions that has come out, or that the recovery has not gone beyond the N50. Okay. Okay. Right. What I'm fine. saying is that we don't have a huge, we're a small country, so we don't have a huge amount of good data about our country broken down by county and region, but we do have some. And when you look at all of those figures, employment, unemployment, average per person incomes, um, population, car sales, house sales, anything that we have that breaks our country down between urban and rural or or, um, with the counties or the regions, what do we find? We actually find there's not much of a difference between what's going on in urban and rural areas. And that was beautifully encapsulated with the opinion poll, the exit poll at the election five weeks ago. The RTE exit poll asked people, how are you feeling financially compared to a year ago? Better off, worse off, uh, or, or, or less well off? Almost no difference between urban and rural Ireland. Um, And that reflects the data. I'm not saying there aren't challenges. I'm not saying that there aren't pockets of the country that have different problems, just as there aren't pockets of urban areas that have particular problems. But there is no strong data evidence to support this notion of no recovery in rural Ireland or this big divergence between rural and urban. Michael Fitzmaurice, your blood is probably boiling as you listen to this, but let, let, can, can, you, can, can we give us your take about the agricultural budget being cut by 40%, the average farming income uh, is 67% of what it was in 1995, plus many other statistics that you no doubt have? Yeah, first of all, and look at it, my blood doesn't boil. Um, uh, it is good to have a debate on it. First of all, I'm the first, as, as many times I've said, that there are parts of cities as well that have been neglected. But the facts are that in Roscommon, uh, Mayo and Galway, which is called the West Region for Employment, and this isn't coming from me, these are the stats. In Q313 and in Q315, there were 4,500 less people employed. It would uh, do then good to actually drive to some of these towns where people talk at the moment around Ireland about minimum wage. They're not even earning the minimum wage. People leaving their doors open in small shops and small pubs 15, 14 hours a day trying to survive. And farmers with the income loss they have had, Dan can tell you the amount of leader funding um, that has been basically cut since 2013. And I'll give you an example. Does Dan think that a child maybe with special needs um, in our, maybe in a wheelchair in Dublin they can get public transport where you go down the country 
there is no such thing out in rural areas. Or I've met last week a school principal where a youngster uh, that needed broadband within the school. If you were in the city area, you would have real good broadband. And down the country, you have none. All we are asking for is a leg up, an even playing field. We are not saying... There are parts, and Dennis correct in this, there are some towns, we call it like Westport, there are places in Munster where... Um, say with Glanbia and that the milk has increased but in the general context of the smaller towns in rural Ireland and out the country in rural Ireland people are suffering people are on their knees and things have got worse there is no point saying they've got better we are on the ground day in day out you can do a poll of a thousand people it can go up and down by four percent the reality of it is is you talk to the people on the ground and they will explain to you what is going on in rural Ireland it can be resurrected. I have no doubt about that. It needs a bit of a leg up. This can be done. Okay. You've seen it yourself, Bobby, with post offices, guard the station closures, a lot of centralisation of services. Does, do we think it's right to bring someone for cancer treatment from Donegal to Galway? Do we think that's a good idea, 340 or 50 kilometres to treat them? Okay. Is this the Ireland that we want? Or do we want a different Ireland to have four or five hospitals within five uh, mile radius in Dublin and have another person 380 kilometres going for the same treatment. Okay, thanks for that, Michael. Dan, drive to Sligo as I did at the weekend, go to places like Longford, go to Athai, go to Yall. I could n- mention hundreds Absolute, of them. Absolutely. And, and, and they're, they're, these towns are dying and, on their and feet. I, and I see it when I go out of town as well. There are difficulties. But I also know in the part of Dublin 8 where I work, there are, there are you know, really, really serious problems as well. This, this is not, I don't want to, you know, make this an emotive uh, issue or a town versus uh, rural type of debate. Sure, what I'm saying is, you know, the deputy there mentions a leg up. There are many, many projects and, and areas of the country and groups in society who could do with a leg up. My point is that when we formulate government policy, we do it on the basis of the best available evidence and we don't favour one group over another simply because that group is more articulate or better able to shout. And we certainly don't do it be in, in behind closed doors where some groups of elected representatives are able to extract from a political party favours for their constituents purely for, by mean, by, by, for reasons of political expediency. That's the point I'm making. It's not against anyone. It's saying we have very limited fiscal space, to use that expression people may be tired of hearing. We all know that. The question is, when we allocate the small amount of available money that is there, that we do it on a clear, transparent basis, on the basis of what is most effective to the people who need it most. So what you're saying is that we shouldn't take from one group in society and redistribute it to others. No, I'm saying exactly that. I support that. Just as I support the idea that those of us who have jobs and are better off will help people who do not I am in favour of a European welfare state and redistribution from richer people to poorer people. I am also in favour of redistributing from urban to rural because in the nature of the modern economy, urban areas generate more wealth. That's just how it is. And I am absolutely in favour in our society that we have solidarity in our society that we do transfer from urban to rural, but we need to make a strong case for it uh, and we need to have it based on transparency and good evidence. Michael, do we need to be careful here that we don't pit rural, uh, as Dan says, the rural and urban divides against one another? Uh, you know, well, the, for, the, for first, the first thing, Bobby, if you heard me when I started off, I said there are areas in a lot of cities, and it is these same econ- economists when they were drawing up 
a way forward for Ireland and for Europe that uh, planned some of this out. And what we have had is because of an influx of people into some of the major cities, for example, Dublin, that we have, you know, the people that are on the lower incomes basically not being able to afford accommodation. And the more people you magnate into an area, the bigger problems you have. I am a believer, and I'm not this parish punk type of politician that Dan may refer to. Um, I believe that we need regional development in all areas. Okay. I believe that we should have fair broadband in be it Dublin, be it Galway, be it Donegal, be it Cork. I believe that we need an even cap uh, payment system, which actually isn't a bigger budget because it wouldn't be a bigger budget. I believe that we should have this, in fairness, to, to give regional development, you need proper infrastructure in different parts of the country. Because what, what you have to remember, Bobby, is that in all the major cities, one time ago, there wasn't a 100 years ago or 80 years ago, there wasn't that many people living in some of them. The infrastructure was put in and a city was built around it. An economy was built around it. I am a firm believer that we, can, that we have oil wells in, in what I call rural parts of Ireland that we can explore for the simple reason the development hasn't gone into it. It will be good for both the urban and the rural areas by developing these areas, by putting the infrastructure in and by making sure that there is an equal treatment for all our okay. citizens in all parts of Ireland. Dan, rural Ireland by its geography uh, is, is, is going to be, there will always be an imbalance, will there not, in costs when you talk about transport, when you talk about things like broadbands, things that should be basic, you know, that we take for granted in urban areas. Uh, absolutely. Can I, can and, I just say, Deputy, I, I never called you a parish pump politician. I never used any derogatory uh, uh, sort of name calling. I'm not in the business of name calling, so let's just, just let's just be, be be clear on that. When it comes to uh, infrastructure, if you think about something like broadband, we, we're a very unusual country because we have this extraordinary demographic history. We had 120 years of population decline. No country in the world, no sure. place in the world has had that. So we have now one of the emptiest countries for our. Uh, latitude in Europe. In fact, we are the emptiest country compared to Britain or France. You've got a lot more people packed into a, a, an area, which can make something like rolling out broadband much more expensive. Now, you have to ask this question. If you have somebody living in a very remote area and it costs a million euro to bring broadband to that person, is it a good use of taxpayers' money to spend one million euro bringing broadband to one person? Now, that's an extreme case. It very I'm, much is. Yeah. I'm simply saying that we need to sit down and evaluate the way we spend taxpayers' money. Sure. Um, the so what, what Dan is saying, let me back in there, what Dan is saying is the, what the, I, I spoke to you earlier on, Bobby, about a child in the school that has special needs, that needed broadband. What Dan is just after saying there is that we don't cherish all our children equally. If it is economically viable, we make sure that a child with a disability, where it is economically viable, we put in the infrastructure. And where it's not, look at, leave them and let them, whatever happens, happen. Well, I, I would put it to you, Dan, that, that the, you know, we do need to recognise that the infrastructural costs of Garda stations, post offices, by virtue of the geography of the country, are going to be more in rural areas. Yep. They yep. just And we, we have to accept that uh, as a society. Uh, absolutely. And that's why, exactly as I said earlier on, I personally support redistribution from urban, urban to rural. But that does not mean that you don't think about how you do things and how much they're going to cost. You have always got to prioritise things. You look at the different things and you say, OK, what will make a bigger difference to rural area? Would it be broadband? Would it be a local Gorda station? You have to think and evaluate. Just we do that sure. at everything. We, we say, what will give us the biggest bang for a buck? We can't just say everybody deserves everything. 
Michael, could I just put it to you finally that do we need to be careful with the, I suppose, the bias of independent deputies now, you know, in this in this in this government that we're hopefully about to form? You know, you say you're not you're not you're interested in the collective, you're interested in urban areas as well as rural areas, but there is a real danger, is there not, that with things like Minister for Rural Affairs, that rural affairs could actually be disproportionately brought up the agenda. I don't believe that that can happen because I'll I'll give you the example, Bobby. I have often brought people from different parts of Ireland, north, south, east and west, and I'd ask them to write down the six biggest problems they have. And five out of six of them, there will be a common denominator among it. All we are looking for, as I say, and look at the likes of the Independent Alliance, we have done documents out. And, you know, does Dan think that it's wrong for the likes of the West of Ireland to develop a Western arc? that you will get 30% funding out of Europe, because I believe that that's what we should be doing, because we we can make sure that more jobs will be created there. Do we try and um, create more jobs in the different parts of Ireland? Because if we do, we'll take the pressure off Dublin. And this thing about independent TDs, all we are shouting for and all we are doing is the same as what the TDs in the parties were look, would be looking for. But unfortunately, the whip system made them shut up, to put it very simple. And what we are now doing is highlighting the imbalance that's there. All we are looking for is a level playing field. And yes, of course, I've, I've, I'm a firm and a passionate believer that the housing situation in Dublin needs solving and it needs to be done efficiently. But also, I'm a firm believer that be it broadband or be it infrastructure or be it you know, the different parts of rural Ireland, that they deserve a fair crack at the whip as well. We can do this evenly. There's no such thing as pitting one against the other. Okay. TDs, in fairness, are there to represent the people in their areas. I'm not talking about sweetheart deals. What I am talking about, a fair and just society for all our people. All right. Thanks for that, Michael. Last word to you, Dan O'Brien. Yeah, I fully agree. It's not about pitching one group against each other. It's against pitching one project against another and making sure that the ones that are chosen are the ones that have the biggest impact. They're based on analysis, transparency, not on emoting. Okay, send your text into 53106. We'd love to hear from you. They'll cost you 30 cents. Lots of debate on this. Big thanks to my guest, Dan O'Brien, Chief Economist at the Institute of International and European Affairs, and Michael Fitzmaurice, Independent TD for Roscommon Galway. Thanks very much, guys. Loads more to come after the break. Stay tuned. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie now you're most welcome back to the programme. Bobby here standing in for George today. Huge, huge reaction uh, to uh, Dan O'Brien and Michael Fitzmaurice piece just before the break there about rural-urban divides. Hi Bobby, I'm in Roscommon. I cannot get broadband because the exchange is only call-enabled. Won't get broadband until 2020. No divide my backside. That's from Howard. Uh, Dan is deluded if he thinks anything in this country is transparent. And Jerry tells us that people should not be encouraged to stay in miserable, dreary villages. Uh, people are better off in large urban areas where services are available. Thanks for that, Jerry. Um, okay, house prices. Uh, there's been a lot of debate about them recently. They've actually risen in the first three months of the year and they look set to continue rising. Is this a continuing sign that we're getting our strategy about housing wrong? Um, to discuss this and just the, the whole thing about what type of houses we should be building. I'm delighted to be joined by Alan Burns. He's from uh, Bright Design Architects. He's an architect. He's going to talk to us about some of the planning legislation. And Lorcan Sarah, lecturer in housing in DIT. You're both very welcome to the programme. Uh, Lorcan, I'm going to start with you. And uh, I was reading an article 
uh, by Paul Millian yesterday's uh, in, in Saturday's Independent and uh, really uh, uh, Connor Skeen was talking about the type of accommodation that we should you know Connor well I'm sure but uh, that a, a third of people now live alone uh, three quarters of homes have three or less people in them so not to get into the whole I suppose I want to focus really on the type of housing that we should be building from yeah. here, and uh, and we'll talk about how it can be built afterwards. Yeah. There's, there's, what, what should we be building, Larkin? Yeah, there's, there's two interesting things, Bobby, that that people mightn't be aware of across the country in the next uh, the next five to to seven years. About one third of all households are going to be renting. Okay, so that's that's a, that's a quite a significant change from what we've been doing before. And the other thing that's interesting, and it's more in the large urban areas, in particular in Dublin, three quarters of all new households are going to be for three people or less, and about. 57, 58% of new households are going to be one or two persons. Now, yeah. that, it's really interesting that because that, that's a total change from our, our traditional family or household size, you know. We're basically getting married later and we're having fewer kids. And that's all part, that's a normal process in countries as they develop and become wealthier um, that people delay, they have a career for longer. And they, so anyway, we're having smaller families. And it, so the, the traditional three and four bed semi-D of 120 square metres or 110 square metres uh, on, on housing states uh, all over the country, they're not really what, what we need anymore. We need much more kind of compact. Now, compact doesn't necessarily mean smaller, but we need more compact ways of living, and we need uh, appropriate kind of apartment and house sizes uh, to fit the new kind of household size, if you know what I mean. Okay. So, so the problem that we're going to go, the problem we're going to run into now in the next few years is that developers have lands where they have bought lands very expensively over the years. And the quickest way to make a profit, the most profitable housing that you can build are three and four bed semi-Ds. And Adamstown is a great example here where they want to, where the developers who own the land want to turn apartments back into three and four bed, bed semi-Ds because they can make the, most, make the most profit of it. But actually, that's not really what we need anymore, you know. Okay, so, so yeah, it's interesting you say that, you know, about what we need. and But what we need and what we want can be two different things, you know, like... Well, yeah, and it's a, it's a good point, Bobby, but sorry to, to cut across you. It's a yeah. really interesting point there because one of the things that, that we have a real problem with apartments in Ireland uh, and, and nobody regards them as a serious way to live. And one of the reasons they don't regard them as a serious way to live is because the offering that we've been given over the years in apartment living has been really poor. Yeah. We, we have been offered rubbish in terms of size and quality and insulation and heating and noise in particular. And the real killer for people is the way these apartment blocks have been managed and the management set up around them. There is, it's a real nightmare. So unless we get that better and get it right, apartments are always going to be seen as a, as a slightly kind of quirky way to live. And sure, why, wouldn't, why would I want an apartment when I could get a house? All right, let's bring in our next guest. He's Alan Burns of Bright Design Architects. Alan, you're very welcome to the programme. Thank you, Bobby. Now, as an architect, as somebody who's who's seen, I suppose, the planning mistakes that maybe we've made, uh, who's seen how we've evolved up to now, uh, what would you be saying in terms of planning, uh, how we should be dealing with this, Alan? Well, I think planning is all about long-term strategy. And I think in this day and age, we we tend to have a bit of a, a focus on the, how to fix something very quickly. And I think building and planning, are the two don't go together. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you need to think long-term. You need to think about the whole process, getting the design professionals involved, picking the right sites in the right places, design the right mix in the right locations, and then ultimately building it. And I think the the solutions that have been touted these days are much about much more about sound bites and how to get the quickest housing solution to to solve the homelessness crisis that we have, rather than are we building the right thing. And I think Lorcan touched on that there as well. And I think there is a there is a a cultural psyche here of Right or wrong, you know, everyone must own a property. Property is king. Um, and there's also this mindset that apartments 
with them come all of the issues that we have, say, when you associate Ballymun and all the problems that that had back in the 50s and 60s. Mm. And also people also have a mindset about how they like to live. They like to have cars. They don't like to, to think that they're going to have to get a, a bus or a train to where they have to go. And I have plenty of people who it all sounds very admirable talking about this, but I think many people just want the easy life. And particularly in a country like this where we don't have the infrastructure, it's very difficult to convince people to change to apartment living. What about Larkin's point there about the increase in people renting? Uh, should that influence what we're building? Um, or does it matter? Well, I think you always have to look at the customer at the end of the day because the customer's always right. Mm. And But, I but think the, it's the also whole thing about it, there's a bad taste in our mouths about, about when we look at Priory Hall and we look at some of these places that, that we were given rubbish, people don't really trust about it. You know, they just, they're uncomfortable with, with apartments. If you're bringing up a family, it's fine for a couple of years, but then you've got to, you've, people think then, oh, I'll be stuck with an apartment and I won't be able to get a house when I have kids, for instance. Yeah. That kind of thing. Well, I think the quality issue is being addressed, albeit a bit slowly. Um, there has been new building control legislation, which is slowly bringing about a, a sea change in that. Um, it'll take a, while, a long time to convince people um, of the mistakes of the past that have been addressed and they're gonna, that's not going to be repeated. Um, I think, though, you have to be flexible in whatever you provide, because while we have an issue at the moment um, with a lot, of, a lot of renting and homelessness, I think that a lot of the time is to do with the hangover of the property crash. And we have to think again into the future long term where we're going to be in a few years time. OK, Lorcan, do we need a different type of landlord coming back to the to the to people renting property? If, 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 if it's increasing, as you say, like most of the rental accommodation available to people is owned like the landlord only has one house. Like, should the state be buying houses? What about churches? Like there's some innovative thinking that I saw there about different ownership that yeah. would would make property available to rent. Yeah, but there's a couple of interesting things. And Alan touched on one of the interesting reasons why people are obsessed with owning property is because our whole pension system and our health system, if you think of the fair deal, is all predicated around being an owner of an asset when you're 66. Yeah. Right. And so that's driving the system. The problem we have is that one third of people, and not because they're poor or, or, or anything like that, it's just because the nature of work and contract work, they're going to be renting forever. Yeah. So what we don't do in Ireland, and this is where the architectural profession comes in, we don't do things like build to rent, which are purpose built, you know, apartment blocks, we'll say, that are built with specifically to be managed really well and managed fairly easily by large-scale landlords. So if, you, if, if, if listeners think of um, the Big Bang Theory and, and you see the guys going downstairs to the laundress, so you'd have things like communal laundress and district heating systems and things like that. Mm. Now, we're not doing that, and we really should. We need to start looking at how to provide for people to rent in the future. Now, landlords is one aspect of that. We, we tend to have a lot of what are called mom and pop or amateur landlords or whatever you want to call them. The average age of a landlord in Ireland is 52. They have two properties. They're male. They're 95% Irish. That's all very well. On the, on the other hand, you have the vulture funds. There's a whole spectrum of people in between that we need to get into the market, including okay. the church and pension funds and all that. You know, I have loads of texts that I want to come to in a minute. I'm going to ask you both to help me with them. But, you know, you say we need a different type of landlord. There's also a different type of tenant. People would have associated renters before with students, uh, with the unemployed, with, you know... Immigrants, the, yeah. yeah. immigrants. But now, you know, the CEO of Google can be renting a place for a year or, the, you know, the, that the the spectrum of of people actually renting has widened so yeah, much. Very much so. So you'll find, and that probably is back to the point about, about the different type of work out there. A lot of work is nowadays on contract. 
Uh, and, and the media is a great example of this where people are on three or six month contracts. But even Google, you might have be on a four year contract. So you mightn't be able to get a mortgage to, 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 to buy somewhere. So you'll find very well educated and well paid people yeah. who are having to rent. And they don't want maybe to rent from a mom and pop landlord, even though there's nothing wrong with it really. They want a professional service with maybe an office on site. And if the light bulb goes, they're able to go downstairs and get them to fix it. And they're willing to pay for it. And that's a two way street that people who want to rent long term need greater security. They need, yeah. you know, we need to give them some security. You want to come in there, Alan? Yeah, yes. Just thinking, I mean, clearly there is, a, there is a demand there for the young professionals coming in, but I think we have a more immediate demand of the people who have lost their homes or can't get, in, get onto the popular ladder, be it on rental or fully owned. And I think quite often we have the housing stock there. We just don't, we have the wrong people living in the wrong places or stuck in the wrong place or not in any place at all. And I think, I think we need a system of trying to make connections between those people. I mean, we can quite easily find a house in Florida to swap with a homeowner with our own, but yet we can't swap houses with people in our immediate cities and locations. There could be plenty of people, I'm thinking young people with families stuck in apartments that were built in the 1990s in the city centres, older people who are approaching retirement out in the suburbs, both would love to be in each other's houses. Yeah, but there just doesn't seem to be a mechanism to make that happen. We have social media that can connect strangers or or people you haven't seen in 30 years, but, you know, can't connect the people that need to be connected. And the regulations play a role here uh, as well, as as Alan will know, as being an architect. If you think about all the empty spaces over shops that that, that are littering places like Dublin uh, and Cork, and one of the reasons that, that, say, I couldn't buy an apartment over a shop is because of fire regulations. Yeah. Uh, will preclude me or preclude the owner from selling it to me or me from buying it or I'd never get a mortgage. And in, in a lot of European cities, it, it's acknowledged that you can buy those properties, but you're buying it on the basis, like caveat emptor, you're buying it on the basis that you're fully aware that it doesn't meet the standards. And people make that choice for themselves. And the other thing about getting people to live over shops, uh, Larkin, is that, you know, that's a potential so- solution for lots of towns that we see in rural Ireland. Where, where if you can get people, all those main streets need is actual people. There was a text that you had earlier on saying, like, why would I live in a miserable village or get people to live in... Well, the reason the village is miserable is because there's nobody living in it. And the reason that it doesn't have a bank and, you know, the doctor's surgery is closing and the guard station is closing is because there are so few people living in it. Yeah. It's, and, and it's when you get back into that idea of kind of consolidating and I don't mean in, in, in big cities or, but even in, in, in like there's no point in complaining about your village losing its services as you live in your house two miles from the village yeah. and are driving everywhere you know if you really want to make a, a, a stand it's also much easier the, the point about broadband earlier on was like broadband is going to be the saviour of rural Ireland I think but it, it, you know when you live in a dispersed fashion all over the country it's really hard to bring okay. broadband everywhere you know let's have a quick look at some of the text Alan I'll put this first one to you I just got planning permission to extend my ground floor apartment First one we, we know in the country, this should be easier for people to do, extend a ground floor apartment. Well, easy enough to get planning. I hope they have a fire cert and a dis- right. disability access cert that goes with that. Right. Um, so, oh it's, God, you yeah. know, there's a lot of other things people don't actually consider. And then, again, an extension to a, a ground floor apartment are the people above whose wall that supports their external wall. When that gets knocked out, are they going to have any concerns about how you do that? OK, they, so not as simple as... Not uh, as simple. As Apartments, I think, are very good where people don't want to tinker with it and they want, they're happy to say the long term. I think there is an obsession, as I said, in this country with people and property and it's you can see it in the TV shows that are, are rated on the, on the TV that we watch every night on our screens at home. People love putting their own stamp on things. Apartments generally aren't suited for that.
I'll give the last text to, to Lorcan. Uh, mistakes of the past cannot address not having a back garden. I live in a two-bedroom apartment with two children and we have to leave the house and get out because the kids will go up the walls if they stayed indoors. Yeah. A back garden solves all that. It does, yeah. And one of the things they do in, in, in other countries, in fairness, is, is they provide decent private open space, which is your terraces and your balconies to do your your apartment. So your apartment might be huge, but you will have a decent-sized terrace or, or, or balcony. And also to provide good public space around there so that you can let the kids downstairs and out to play around safely rather than out the back back garden, if you know what I mean. So the, it's a kind of a holistic approach to apartment living rather than planting up a block and and developer moves on to the next one. You know? just, just one more question before you go, Lorcan, and this is around, I, I saw... Uh, an incentive proposed there about giving VAT reduction uh, in the sector to get builders mm. there. Surely the builders and developers will just trouser that. Absolutely, totally. And and what you'll find from the, the CIF and these guys is to say, well, they use the hotel industry as an example. Now, this is more your end, Bobby. Yeah, they well... Use the, they use the leisure... That, and I keep saying, well... The hotel industry, did anybody notice a cheaper hotel bedroom after the VAT was reduced? And, and nobody did. And the, the tourists, like the hotels are taken off again. And it's nothing to do with the VAT reduction. It's to do with the economic situation in the tourist-owned countries that allows them to have money to come here and spend money on our expenses. Well, it's for, it's for another day, Larkin, but try selling, telling that to a hotelier no. in Tullamore <laughs> or in Athlone or somewhere. I, know, I think I that, the, again, the Dublin divide there and the, the, the performance is a different. Listen, yeah. it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you both. Uh, Larkin, sir, their lecturer housing in DIT and Alan Burns of Bright Design uh, Architects thanks very much to both of you uh, for joining us The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7 seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips MitsubishiMotors.ie OK um, Michaela McCullum's interview with RT has attracted a lot of attention we talked a little bit about it at the start of the programme in many ways it was an apology of, for her actions did she do a good job? And is there a correct way to do a public apology? I'm delighted to be joined by my guest, Jack Murray. He's the CEO of MediaHQ.com and he's an, an expert on public apologies. Jack, you're very welcome to the programme. <laughs> How are you doing? Yeah, I should. I, I think I need an apology. I spent the afternoon listening to apologies. which, uh, But yeah, it was interesting. I um, I had I've, one of the few people, I'd say, who Sky Plus the programme last night. But um, I think it was an interesting setting for, for, for the apology. Let's have a quick look at, listen to uh, Michaela McCollum apology that simply I made a made a decision in my moment of madness I'm not a bad person I want to demonstrate that I'm a good person so she's 19 years of age she made a mistake she's not she's saying she's not a bad person it sounds honest it sounds sincere but I thought that bit fine, but when you listen to the overall interview, I thought there was bits missing from the story. But that's just me maybe being a little bit cynical. Before you get into the actual meat of the apology, there's two things that you need to look at. One is the motivation behind why is this happening now? Yeah. Um, and I suppose in Michaela's case, you know, uh, it was to clean the slate. It was to rehabilitate her image. Um, the second one, which is always an important one, is what's the setting? And... She has really suffered, if you look at the social media backlash, because of the setting. And there was a huge debate about the fact that RTE gave her her own programme. So there was nowhere on the schedule that you could have fitted this in. Um, so one nil down from the start before you even open your mouth that it's public service broadcasting. And there was a huge, uh, on my Twitter feed last night, there was a huge groundswell of opinion. That and where do you sit on that argument around, um, around RTE putting out? Regardless if a third party recorded it, that, that's immaterial in my view. Look, it's, 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 it's RTE put it out. 
about? As a younger man, Bobby, I used to be high-minded about the media I consumed. I used to tell people that when I bought kind of glossy, trashy magazines, they were for somebody else. But I'm actually old enough now to say that, like, I buy these things for myself. I Sky Plused it last night because I was going to watch it this evening and I watched it on the player today. So, like, the reason it was being done, um, I know people who work in scheduling in RTE. When the numbers come out, they will be huge. Was it public service broadcasting? It was journalism. People were interested in the story. And what about the apology? Just staying with that, because that's that's what we're talking here is public apologies. So she made an apology. As I say, it sounded sincere. Having listened to the whole interview, as you've done uh, twice, yeah. uh, was there bits left out? Well, one more one more point before we get to the was she paid? Apology. Well, one more. Like, there was a couple of parts in it. There was obviously, I would imagine, and my opinion on this is, there was some sort of an agreement done on the rigor of the questioning because it wasn't. Bobby Kerr, Jeremy Paxman type grilling that she got. But the other interesting thing um, about public apologies was her appearance. Yeah. So she had an image makeover that upset an awful lot of people. Yeah. And uh, that was that was kind of hugely referred to. So somebody said, uh, you know, they'll wait until they see whether she pops up on Celebrity Big Brother. Is this part of a ploy to get a book deal? But when you get into the meat of the apology, actually, it was quite good. Yeah. She was contrite. She addressed the issues. She said she was sorry. I, I think you're um, right. I think your point about what happens next is interesting because I think people will 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 consider the apology in that context. Well, one one point about it was, uh, and some of the other examples that we will get to discuss um, have the same characteristics. It lacked a certain emotion. It lacked a certain empathy. So it was quite robotic. So she was saying the words. Was she feeling them? Was she overcoached? But. There was a kind of a veneer when she was speaking and we never really got beyond that. And I think that would have affected how it, how, how, it, uh, how, how people deciphered it on the okay. other side. As you say, you've got a few to, we've a few to talk to. Bill Clinton, now again, the Monica Lewinsky thing. Uh, he apologised, he must have apologised loads of times. Uh, his apology wasn't sincere enough. Let's have a listen to him first. Indeed, I did have a relationship with Ms. Lewinsky that was not appropriate. In fact... It was wrong. It constituted a critical lapse in judgment and a personal failure on my part for which I am solely and completely responsible. But I told the grand jury today, and I say to you now, that at no time did I ask anyone to lie, to hide or destroy evidence, or to take any other unlawful action. And he said later, I'm having to become quite an expert in this business of asking for forgiveness. So the, the other thing that he said later, which in, is in the realms of pass the sick bag, if you ask me. <laughs> now, this matter is between me, me, the two people I love most, my wife and our daughter and our God, you know, right. and, uh, and the audience stood and gave him a, a round of applause. But I, I think, look. I'm a huge Clint from a communications point of view. I'm a huge Clinton fan. Context here: 17th of August, 1998. The impeachment proceeding um, was was gathering pace. He was impeached. It was in the House of Congress um, in November, December of that year. So he was put to the pin of his collar. He had obfuscated an awful lot, and he and, had to do this. And is it not funny, Jack? Uh, and my guest is Jack Murray, the CEO of MediaHQ.com. Is it not funny, Jack, that after all these years, if you mention Bill Clinton, the first associate people have with him is Monica Lewinsky. Oh, well, I, well, it's funny. I don't. I wouldn't necessarily agree with that. I think, like, I think Clinton has done. He did a lot of uh, good, and notwithstanding the fact, um, I think he was one of the people who talk a lot about Obama as a communicator. Do you remember Hillary said he was a difficult dog to keep on the porch? <laughs> I thought that was a great line. Well, it's funny. We'll see. We'll see how she gets on in November. She might have to keep him on the porch a bit longer. You know. All right. Let's uh, talk. We moved to Tiger Woods. Yes, uh, he had an apology, but it wasn't an admission. Have a listen to this. 
No, we don't have Tiger Woods. So, uh, Ellen uh, Nordegren, uh, she basically came out with a golf club. Do you remember all this? He yes. reportedly was with a girl called Rachel Usatel, uh, a cocktail waitress named Jamie Grubbs. She came out, she... She slapped the car with a golf club a couple of times. Someone said crouching tiger hidden hydrant. I think the, the, the motor or the, the jeep ran into a hydrant. But the, one of the interesting things about this was the setting was awful. So the, the incident that, that caught the world's attention happened in November of 09. This was the following February. It was a hand-picked audience. And if you could have picked Bobby worse drapes, it reminded me of a cinema in a, in a, in a, in a small country town, a kind of blue drapes. Uh, he was very flat. It was a very cynical exercise. It was so such a cynical exercise and it was also quite bizarre so he he was very flat in tone through the whole thing he managed to have a pop at the pap- paparazzi he then went into this really bizarre kind of segue about his Buddhism which yeah. didn't seem wa- and he finished up by thanking the people at Accenture I thought she really behaved with you know given the, 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 the position uh, Ellen was in I thought she behaved remarkably well she she basically stood above it all and she left him she did and I think <laughs> I, I think the interesting thing about the apology as well was it was all about control Yeah. so there was a hand-picked audience there were no questions it was 13 minutes and you were, you'd be nearly asleep at the end of it. All right, let's go to Lance Armstrong. He was good as well. Have a listen to this. You overcome the disease. You win the Tour de France seven times. You have a happy marriage. You have children. I mean, it's just this mythic, perfect story. Yes. And it wasn't true. Was it a big deal to you? Did it feel wrong? At the time? Mm-hmm. No. It did not even feel wrong? No. It's scary. Did you feel bad about it? No. Even scarier. Did he use the word sorry? I don't think he did. It was interesting. He, he picked Oprah to do the apology and um, he had spent a couple of days with her. But like everything about the context was interesting as well in that uh, he was about to be um, the US Drug Administration were after him and uh, he, he picked Oprah. They went into a very quick shotgun. Yes and no. Um, did you take performance enhancing drugs? Did you take EPO? Uh, and then his body language uh, he, he said um, what he did wrong. Um, and it's interesting. I looked this up before I came in. A sociopath is defined as a pathological liar who lacks remorse, is manipulative and superficially charming and who fails to take responsibility for his actions. And that's what that whole okay. episode kind of it, it, it rang of. Our final one is a bit closer to home. Uh, it's Enda Kenny uh, setting the story right on who the whingers were. This was a local, a local issue. I wasn't referring to members of the public anywhere, nor indeed my own county and my own town. I was referring specifically to a number of full-time professional um, uh, politicians at the Fianna Fáil party who've constantly talked down their own town, who constantly scaremonger. If any offence was taken by the public, then I I regret that. Obviously, I'm speaking specifically about uh, Fianna Fáil politicians. So if you're explaining, you're losing. It was interesting. Some of the context to this that I found out that I found quite humorous was it was at a rally in Castlebar and uh, his colleague and not often his friend, uh, Deputy Michael Ring, was uh, up before him. And because it was so close to the election date, Michael Ring decided he'd be all uh, presidential and uh, was giving the message and was all on song. And then he said, Enda gets up and starts rabble rousing the crowd. And he said, if anybody walked in, they would have swore Michael Ring was a Taoiseach and Enda was a backbencher. Um, he got a number of opportunities to apologise. Um, so he made the mistake. The next day he was asked, was he sorry? And he said, uh, no, there's some people and they wouldn't know sunshine if they saw it. And he completely dug himself in yeah. until a point where 
he did his interview with Brian Dobson and he said, I would first like to apologise to the people of Castlebar. And someone said to me, if he landed from the moon three weeks previous and someone played this clip to him, he'd say, what have I done? So in one line, the, the message is, if you're making an apology, what should we be saying? You should consider the context. Uh, you could, should consider the motivation behind it. Um, and you have to be contrite. You have to address the problem. You have to, it has to mean something. It has to come from the okay. heart. And if it does all of that, it should connect with people. Jack Murray, CEO of Media HQ, thanks very much for that. A great analysis there on how to give the proper apology. 